sermon podcast of Antioch Church in Colorado Springs. If you've been impacted by this ministry and would like to support the work we're doing in Colorado Springs, you can give online at our website, antiochcos.com. We hope that the Lord ministers to you through this message. I have a very, very simple and short message for you. A part three of this message on discipleship, following Jesus. Next week, we'll be beginning a series that's going to go all the way through until Advent, which is the week after Thanksgiving. So it'll be an extensive series on divine hospitality. If you don't know what that means, come back next week and the subsequent 13 weeks. No, I don't think it's quite 13 weeks, but it is a little, it's a little while. So today, I'm going to wrap up our series from uh, Matthew chapter 16. I'm just going to do a little bit of a recap of the last couple of weeks from Pastor Jade's message uh, messages, and then we'll move right along. So he's been teaching for two weeks from Matthew chapter 16, and I'm not going to go through and read all of the verses, uh, but this is the passage which I famously talk about all the time, almost in every message that I preach, because I think it is so fascinating where Jesus poses the question to the disciples, who do men say that I am? And of course, Peter responds rightly. And then the very next passage, Peter goes and pulls Jesus aside and essentially rebukes him for saying that he, as the Messiah, is going to suffer at, their ha- at the hands of Um, of the Romans and is going to die. That is part of his calling as the Messiah. So Jesus poses this question, and, and just in brief recap, I think one of the things that we need to take away from this as a lifelong message is that we have expectations of God and of ourselves that we do not know that we have. And we need to learn to allow Jesus to ask us questions, not because Jesus needs to learn anything, but because we need to learn to come aware of the expectations that we have of both him and of ourselves and of our lives. And I think if we can learn to do this, then we can engage in this process of discipleship with the Lord, which requires learning to rethink things over and over again. As I was prepping for this, and I didn't say any of this in the first service, but I thought it was so interesting because I want to be sympathetic to Peter. I think it's really easy to ostracize Peter. Of course, not physically. He's not here with us anymore but to push on that idea and think that we have progressed past this point. But I went back to chapter 8 in Matthew, and I counted from Matthew 8 to Matthew 15, that there were about 15 miracles, everything from casting out demons to healing the blind, healing the lame, feeding the 5,000, feeding the 4,000, healing Peter's mother-in-law. The list goes on and on and on. And with the disciples' present framework, these signs just solidified and inculcated the ideas they already had for the Messiah. And then here in chapter 16 comes a turning point. And this was by no means Jesus previously misleading them to bait and switch them. But there is always more to God. There is always more to Jesus than any of us are ever aware of. And so in this moment, Jesus reveals something, or the Father reveals something, and Jesus affirms it as they are now entering a new leg in the journey. And I think for us, we have these periods, we have these crossroads 
where Jesus is not going to act the same, where he's not going to appear to be the same. Now, of course, we know that Jesus is not changing, but what's being confronted is the things that we expect of Jesus. And when we see that those certain things are confronted, the appearance is that God has changed, that Jesus has changed. But if we have the awareness to know that that is not the case, then we can respond to these questions and we can open ourselves up to the teaching of the Holy Spirit to confront these things and to reveal new things about who he is to us. And then the second is we need to allow, so the first is allow Jesus to reveal our expectations. He asked this question, who do men say that I am? And then from there, there is a revelation and then there is a rebuke. Amen? Amen? <clears throat> and then Jesus draws them into this next moment. The second point, I think, is allow Jesus to regularly reorient our relationship with him. So Pastor Jay touched on this extensively two weeks ago, the get thee behind me, Satan. And as I was thinking and reading on this, I realized that there is, there's a literary reference going on here referring back to Matthew chapter 4 which happens to be the temptations in the wilderness. So right at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, the spirit leads him into the wilderness. And the third temptation, the enemy draws him up to, the, to a high place and presents him before the kingdoms and all of their splendor. And the enemy tries to make a deal. Let's make a deal. And Jesus says, depart from me, Satan. Which of course in this passage, so this is what's being drawn on. And Jesus doesn't say, depart from me. He says, get behind me, Satan. So there's, he's obviously drawing on it. And the language in the Greek, it's almost the exact same with a little nuance. And the nuance is the direction. If we are going to learn to follow Christ, there's only one inevitable position that we must fall into. And that is the position of being behind him. I mean, this is like really simple common sense stuff, right? But we cannot follow Jesus if we are out in front of him. And I think that this is one of what, what of part is being revealed here in Matthew chapter four is that the enemy is trying to get Jesus to get out in front of the father, right? I will give you these things. We're going to shortcut the process. I'm going to cut off the way, right? The path that Jesus is supposed to travel. So he's trying to get Jesus to get out in front of the Father. And it seems that Peter is doing almost the exact same thing with Jesus here. He's, Peter has now jumped out in front of Jesus, has the audacity to pull Jesus aside. And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, right? You are partnering with the spirit of Satan. And the only proper place for this relationship to work in, is the orientation of Jesus being in front and Peter being behind. And I think that there is a word in this for us. For one, allow space for the Holy Spirit to confront us and reorient the relationship. Because it is so easy to get, to get something from God, to, to know something, to get a revelation, and then we just take off running. And we take off running without ever thinking, if we're actually following Jesus or if we're now way out in front of him. So we should pause frequently, allow Jesus to reveal our expectations and allow Jesus to regularly reorient the relationship. And then today's message, two quick points 
from the last few verses of Matthew chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 25. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it again. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The third point and the last point in this very brief, simple message is avoid the twin stumbling blocks of self-preservation and selfish ambition. Self-preservation and selfish ambition. Verse 25, whoever wants to save their life, whoever wants to preserve their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. And of course, the for me is important there. The flip side of self-preservation is not careless living. It's not a lack of being purposeful or a lack of intentionality. It is, a la- it is giving our lives over to Christ and whatever he wants to do with our lives, right? That is the opposite of self-preservation. It is, I want to be very clear. It is not being careless. It is not seeking the good of ourselves and our families. It's just not doing that at the expense of what God is calling us to do or the people around us. Self-preservation. I think self-preservation is one of the greatest stumbling blocks, particularly for us in Western society, because it's difficult for us to fathom how our American ideals, the things that our lives are built on, could ever actually be a stumbling block. Things like religious freedom, wealth, opportunities, the ability to create a future for ourselves and for our kids and for our descendants, those are inherently good things. Those are not bad things. And so just like Peter with the revelation from God, it is so easy, I think, for us to take those things and just take off running, assuming that they are blessings from God and that we are now warring and fighting for those things on God's behalf. And that's why I think we have to pause frequently and often and allow the Lord to reorient our position with him where we are following. I'm not saying that these are bad things, but I am saying that they very, very quickly can turn into self-preservation where we're making decisions that eventually, I mean, think about how the Crusades came about where Christians are killing Muslims. They're literally going on crusade. They're going to war to get people to love God. <laughs> like, think about the irony of this, right? That they were so threatened by this other religion that they were going to kill them. I think that that should give us reason to pause and to examine the areas of our lives where maybe we have given over or been given over to ideals about self-preservation. <clears throat> I deleted a page in my notes after first service, so I was like, where's my other page? There are only two, guys. There are only two. Like I said, these are not inherently bad things. These are good ideals, which is precisely why they can be so dangerous. In that third temptation, where the enemy pulls Jesus up onto the high place 
and, and he offers a trade. I'll give you the kingdoms and the powers of this world and all their splendor if you will just bow down and worship me. The easy way for us to look at that is to have this visual image of a Satan with a pitchfork, of course. He wouldn't be Satan without it. And he's walking around with Jesus over the course of a couple of days, and he's talking his ear off, trying to make a trade, trying to make a deal. But of course, metaphorically speaking, you and I know that that's not exactly the way that he works in our lives. That Satan, that the ideas of the accuser, the ideas of Satan are... They come to us as an angel of darkness masquerading as an angel of light. And I think if we can start to picture the temptation to grasp for the powers of this world and the kingdoms of this world and all of their splendor, if we can start to realize that sometimes those things are appearing as angels of light but are actually angels of darkness, then maybe we can learn to slow down just a little bit. Mm -hmm. That when we realize that the way that we are tempted is usually in things that look very good. Most of us are oftentimes not tempted to do things like murder or traffic drugs or children. Most of us are tempted to do things that promote self-preservation. And if we can learn to see that, I think we can slow down and ask the Lord to highlight these things in our lives. Lord, are there things that I'm doing that feel good, that I think are good, that I think are right, that I'm utterly convinced are right, but really I'm reacting out of fear because I'm trying to preserve something that I sense is about to be taken away from me. And Lord, if I am doing that, and if you are in that thing being taken away from me, Help me to open my hands and relinquish control. Help us to open our hands and relinquish all control to the Lord. Jesus did not die so that we could have the lives we have dreamed of for ourselves. Jesus died so that like his, our lives could be a gift to God and a gift to the world. I mean, think about that. How insidious it is as Americans. And it's not, I'm, I'm not an American basher. I love this country. I have no desire to live in another country. I love it here. I am grateful. I am blessed beyond belief. But we have to recognize that there are subtle, insidious temptations that we can equate the lives that we have dreamed up for ourselves as the lives that God wants for us, right? And we know this conceptually. But in living life, in making decisions, in choosing what we do with our time, with our money, we have to learn to parse these things out and allow the Spirit to shed light. Jesus did not die so that we could have the lives we've dreamed of for ourselves. He died so that ours, like his, would be a gift to God and a gift to the world. Lord, help us to live our lives as gifts to you and gifts to the world. So I mentioned two stumbling blocks, twin stumbling blocks. Self-preservation and the other is selfish ambition. The twin brother, the flip side of the same coin, selfish ambition. So what is selfish ambition? One way to sum it up would be to want for ourselves what God wants to benefit others, simply. So if self-preservation is driven by fear, selfish ambition is driven by pride, arrogance, and greed. Self-preservation and selfish ambition, two stumbling blocks to following Jesus.
I want to read that verse 26 one more time. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? The truth is, we can and often do give a lot of things in exchange for our soul. Not in a deal with the devil like this seemingly large transaction, but over time, making decisions, slow compromise, the pursuit of material things, the pursuit of security, the, the pursuit of good things that over time press down or wane on our soul so that in the end we hear stories all the time of movie stars, of people worth millions of dollars being depressed, committing suicide, and of course, I am in no way, shape, or form wanting to downplay mental illness. I believe that there are real mental illnesses oftentimes at play in some of these things. But one of the other overwhelming points is that chasing after the things of this world, chasing after money, which seemingly can buy us everything, chasing after security, chasing after power, chasing after fame, they do not often have positive effects on our soul. They cause us to be anxious. They cause us to be frantic. They cause us to cut down and use other people and manipulate people when that's not who we want to be. But these slow, subtle trades for our trading things for our soul happen. It's like erosion. It's like water in the bottom of a river running over rocks for years and years and years. And one day we look up and it's like, what have we been doing for all of these years? Pursuing residual income so that we wouldn't have to work. And now we don't have to work and we're living for what? We're bored out of our minds pursuing retirement. And then we're retired and we're like, oh, I've been a workaholic for 30 years. I don't have any hobbies. I don't know what to do. I don't have any friends. I ran my friends away. I never took time to be with the people I love. I never took time to serve in my local church. No, okay. Okay, shameless plug, shameless plug. But you get the point. You get the point that these things are the stumbling blocks. And stumbling blocks aren't necessarily bad things. They're just misplaced. That's the thing about a stumbling block. A stumbling block in this time was just a rock. The problem is it was in the street. Rocks weren't bad. They needed rocks for all kinds of things. But a rock in the middle of the street then becomes a stumbling block, something that can be good and useful as a resource in our lives, something that God wants to use to bless the world if oriented wrong and in the wrong position can be something that trips us up and cripples our faith and cripples our following of Jesus. So in conclusion, I told you this was going to be brief and I'm, I'm hoping that it will be. I want to read a few verses from Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. This is one of the most famous passages, uh, Pauline passages, that Paul wrote. And there is this famous verse of Jesus empty, he emptied himself, right? Jesus emptied himself and did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But I want us to look and see what it says about selfish ambition. Verse one, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, 
If any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. So what does Paul say here about selfish ambition? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, yet rather in humility value others above yourselves and do what Jesus did. And do not consider all of the resources available to his hand something to be grasped, but something that for Christ were utilized to make his life a gift to the world. And this is one of the ways that we celebrate Christ's gift to us. It is the gift of his body that continues living, of course, through us as the body of Christ, which we celebrate weekly as we come to this table. Aaron, if you would come to the keys, we're going to prepare our hearts to receive the Eucharist today. The word Eucharist, funny enough, just means thanksgiving. And there's different corners and facets of the church that use different words for this. Of course, some Holy Communion, the Lord's Table, uh, also the Eucharist, which means thanksgiving. And it is too frequent that we come to this meal and we only think about it in a somber way. We only think about the sacrifice, which of course we should think about the sacrifice of Christ. But to you and to me, this is a gift. This is the greatest gift, the gift of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ shed for you and for me. This is a gift to the church. So if you would, let us stand. Thank you for listening to the Antioch Church Sermon of the Week. For more information about us, visit AntiochCOS.com.